Wendy Wasserstein has written, has written moments. Um, I recognize rolling up your, the waistband of your skirts to be shorter. I recognize having a woman's, uh, um, a group meeting in which there's always somebody who's who thinks that their their uh, liberation is going to come by swearing a lot. Hello and welcome to another episode of No Script, an unscripted conversation about theater's best scripts. I'm Jacob Mann Christensen, and this is the point in the episode where Jackson would usually say, and I'm Jackson Nikolai. But today I am flying without Jackson Nikolai. It's a very exciting day in a lot of ways, not because Jackson is gone. Of course, we miss Jackson, but because in Jackson's place, we have an awesome special guest. I'll introduce her in just a minute. We do want to let everybody know that this is the second to last episode of season two. It's amazing that we've reached the end of a second season, but this is it. This is the second to last episode of season two. We have one more episode to finish out the season. Then we'll take a short break and we'll be back with you in early July with the beginning of season three. So keep your eye on that. I'm going to introduce our special guest in just a minute, but first I do want to remind all of our listeners to please go over to patreon.com slash no script podcast again patreon.com slash no script podcast that's where you can become a supporter of the show for as little as one dollar a month you can support the work that we're doing on patreon.com it's really helpful if you're willing to do that again one dollar a month over at patreon.com slash no script podcast I hope you'll head over there. Today, I am joined by a special guest. She is the Dean of Arts and Humanities at Northwestern College. She is the special guest that we had in season one, and we're very excited to have her back. Hello, Karen Baum Barker. Hi, Jacob. This is so exciting. Thank you for being willing to join us. Oh, it's very exciting for me. Thanks for asking. Yes, absolutely. So uh, you were with us last season for season one. We discussed, uh, you and Jackson actually discussed Sky Girls by Jenny Lair. Yeah, yeah. Yes, and you and Jackson had... um, maybe a different kind of connection than you and I actually have. Uh, (laughs) The folks that listen to that episode know that Karen is Jackson's mother-in-law. So I I don't, I don't have that claim to fame in this particular (laughs) guest episode. Karen was a professor of mine when I was doing my undergrad at Northwestern college and beloved uh, student. I think you could call yourself. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, thank you very much for that. Karen, you teach, you taught, when, at least when I was in school, you were teaching acting and dramatic literature. Right. Are those still things that you teach? Yeah, yeah, they are. Awesome. Well, this this play should be an exciting one to talk about. Today we are talking about The Heidi Chronicles by Wendy mm-hmm. Wasserstein. Yes, and this play is, um, do you want to say... Anything else about that, Jacob? Like that it won the Pulitzer Prize and yeah, absolutely. Uh, um, those of you who listen to our episodes regularly know that we give a, a brief context for the play and then a synopsis. I'll let Karen do the synopsis here in just a minute. But uh, for the context of the play, it was a 1988 play again by Wendy Wasserstein. We did her play American Daughter in season one. American Daughter is one of my very very favorite plays, and so 
So I'm excited to return for Heidi Chronicles. Uh, The workshop production was done at the Seattle Repertory Theater in 1988. It then transferred to Off-Broadway at the Playwrights Horizon. That that cast was Joan Allen as Heidi and uh, Boyd Gaines as Peter, Peter Friedman as Scoop, and then several other people, including Sarah Jessica Jessica Parker, excuse Mm -hmm. me, who uh, played several of the roles. And then when that cast transferred over to Broadway, uh, the roles that Sarah Jessica Parker was playing was taken over by Cynthia Nixon. There have since been uh, a series of revivals of the play. Um, Some of the more lauded ones came just after Wendy Wasserstein's death um, in the middle 2000s. However, there was a recent attempt at a revival on Broadway in 2015 where Elizabeth Moss played the title role of Wendy, um, or I'm sorry, not Wendy, of Heidi. Uh, That one did not play for very long. And then, of course, there was a film adaption in 1995. And as Karen mentioned, this was the 1989 winner for the Pulitzer Prize for Drama. So we will continue our no-script tradition of pulling from Pulitzer Prize-winning scripts whenever we can. The the synopsis of the play is that this play follows Heidi from... 1965 where she's at a high school dance to 1989 where she is a professional she teaches at Columbia University she's an art historian and it 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 travels in time during the height of the 70s women's movement and and charts Heidi's growth in and around that with her friends she had, her friends come in and through the script as well. So it's about the changes. It's about the insecurities. It's about the failures and the successes of the women's movement around that time. Yeah, that, that's awesome. Um, one of the things that the play is known for, and perhaps Wendy Wasserstein is known for overall, is just how incredibly funny her plays are and this play is no exception uh some of the critics have said that this play um dives a little bit deeper than maybe some of her other scripts into more broad social themes and more in-depth looks at particular characters Mm -hmm. but it does not give up on just the incredibly sharp humor i mean even just reading it alone in my house i was laughing out loud yeah yeah uh wasserstein is genuinely brilliant and she is able to take uh, meaty, weighty things culturally and turn them into something that we can laugh at and we can feel sadness at all at the same time. I think it's one of her gifts. You mentioned American Daughter, which is also one of my favorites. She is, she's, she sees the nuances of it. She, she doesn't just write a a message play she writes about something but writes characters that we can empathize with that we can even love and who are sharp and funny and all, all of that I think it's one of her great strengths that she can see the nuances of any particular issue and and laugh at them yeah, that, that's right. I, I think the word nuance is, is especially keen for this particular script because none of the characters fall, I don't think, into any kind of world of stereotype or even easily defined. The characters 
change so much through the script and were so fully written to begin with. You mentioned that right. the play traverses a, a many years, more than 20 years of yeah. these characters' lives. And Almost so to watch them... Yeah. 25 years, yeah, yeah. To watch them traverse that is really interesting. I wonder, Karen, if maybe we want to talk a little bit about each of the, at least the major characters, yeah. and what what we see go on in their lives over the course of the script. Yeah. <laughs> well, that'll take a while, won't it? Um, because they do morph. Um, uh, Heidi's friend Susan starts out at the high school dance with her, uh, rolling up her skirt uh, so that it's shorter, so that she can catch the eye of this guy that looks like Bobby Kennedy and can twist and smoke at the same time. So she's rolling up the, the waistband of her skirt, and she Susan goes from that to a high-powered Hollywood producer uh, with stop-offs at a at a women's collective farm in Montana, um, so so that's that's Susan. But she's throughout the whole script. The men in her life, throughout the script, the the two primary ones are Peter. You you've already mentioned. He is a doctor. He meets Heidi at the 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 very first dance that we see her at the the first scene. And they are friends throughout the entire play. He, uh, one of the the wonderful pieces of this play is that at, at at about the same time that the '70s women's movement had its sort of oomph, the movement toward uh, uh, particularly men who were gay were dying of HIV, AIDS in the 80s and and so we go through that a little bit too because her friend Peter uh, turns out to be gay but and but he, that's a later revelation too right because yes. at least for the first several scenes of the play which again take place over many many years yeah um there's a sense that she and Peter might end up together or Absolutely. there's a like a delayed sense that their relationship might be forthcoming. That's right. And in the, and and in the scene where he reveals to her that he's gay, she's mad at him that he that he can't just fall in love with her. There's this there's this piece of her hope in about their relationship that dies during that scene also. Yeah, that, that's one of the things that multiple readings or multiple seeings of the play really ends up paying off. In, mm -hmm. in Peter and Heidi's first interaction at this high school dance, they do this odd kind of out of the blue pretend game mm -hmm. where they pretend that they're strangers on a cruise ship. Yeah. And one of the mantras that they create out of improv, I guess, that becomes a mantra of their life is, well, if we can't be married, let's be great friends. Yeah, yeah. And at the time when at the high school dance, if it's the first time you're encountering the story, it even that line seems sort of romantic. It does. And absolutely. Multiple seeings of the play, especially if you go back and read the scene over after knowing the end of the play, mm -hmm. there's this sort of thrum of, oh, well, they are going to be great friends through yeah. their whole life. Yeah. They both seem to be very smart. They both seem to have this great sense of humor. Uh, he seems to get her on numerous levels and accepts who she is, doesn't 
doesn't push the way that the other male character in the play does and his name is Scoop uh I can't remember if we're ever told what his real what his other name is if he I was just about to ask that of you too if you caught that whether that's a real name or not I I hope that's not his his birth name but maybe um and Scoop is sarcastic. We we meet him at the in the second dance scene where they're there to um, for a Eugene McCarthy um, gathering. Also, the, uh, I don't know if you noticed this, Jacob. I mean, I'm sure you did. She inserts political figures into the scenes to kind of help you in in your framework of when we're when we are so right the f- yeah there's multiple of those signposts yes. throughout the play including right. like one example from later in the play i think the beginning of act two it's just as john lennon has died correct and so yes. there's references to the big yes. meeting in the park that everyone went to uh, on in the wake of right that. right so uh scoop meets heidi and he's uh uh charming charismatic sarcastic uh a more much more cynical than peter is he's and he i mean he makes no bones about the fact that he's he really he wants to get her in bed with him he he's you know he's name dropping he's he's being a more stereotypical male at the time He's really going after her in a in a pretty significant way to but, the point where he prompts Heidi to ask, uh, you know, why the f are you so confident? Yes, yeah. His yeah, yeah I don't know his yeah. his charisma. She talks about his charisma a number of yes. times through the play. Causes her to comment on the differences potentially in how they were raised. That's right. And, what what do I think her line is something like. I'm I'm wondering what mothers teach their sons that they don't teach their daughters. Right. That's a significant line in the play as as a whole, I think. Yeah. So those are the two men. Scoop turns into a wealthy, very wealthy uh, magazine editor. At the end of the play, we think he might be going f- toward a congressional political yeah, game. We're not sure. Rather, yeah. yeah. So... Uh, he's, but he also, he, he gets married and he's a philandering husband. He he's, he's not faithful. And I think that's what we expect of him. Actually. I don't think yeah. that surprises anybody, least of well, all Heidi. Th- because the, the final scene of act one is his wedding yeah. and, and yeah. he and Heidi starting in scene two where they meet. And I think they actually do end up leaving together Starting in that scene, they have an on-again, off-again relationship, which causes Heidi quite a bit of distress. And eventually that kind of ends with Scoop marrying someone else mm-hmm. at the end of Act 1. But the the wedding to someone else, he's pretty clear that he is marrying this other person because why? Lisa, I think, is his bride's Lisa, name. Lisa, yeah. He's marrying her because she's, unlike Heidi, she will be content to support him and not have her own agenda, or uh, agenda is probably the wrong word, not have her own dreams and and, and, uh, goals for her life that are career-oriented. It's not that Lisa 
doesn't have a career. She's uh, an illustrator for children's books, but and and a very successful. One. Yeah, a successful one, but she's not any competition for Scoop. She's not intellectually his equal. She's she's he's he's marrying somebody who's gonna build a life that he can kind of show off rather than be somebody who is constantly spurring him to be better, which is what Heidi would be. Right, yeah. So Heidi brings sort of an entourage of friends with her to attend Scoop's wedding. And then just after the ceremony, just before the reception, Scoop comes out to meet this group of friends. He's not met many of them before. They all end up going off for one reason or another. Peter, the doctor, actually ends up going to have the first dance with the bride because <laughs> Scoop's is not really interested in that. Right. Um, and they all leave Scoop and Heidi alone together, which is where much of this comes out in no uncertain terms. I mean, we're not even describing the subtext of what Scoop is trying to no, say. No, no, right. This is what he says openly and clearly that Heidi is, I mean, he would never use the words too good for him, mm -hmm. but too, too equal to him mm -hmm. to be as, uh, uh, what he feels like is an adequate partner. He says there's a whole, there's a, a reoccurring line of his that then comes up later on in created here in this scene where he talks about how if you're, uh, if you're going to pursue a 10 in life, the best, most, you know, the, the best version of your goal, the highest version of your life, and you end up at a six, you know, where most people end, even above average, even above halfway, you're going to be disappointed. But he's marrying Lisa because he wants to pursue a six mm -hmm. and have a happy life forever. Mm -hmm. Right, right. And it's his saying that is also a, com a comment on the feminist movement. He's saying, uh, I've, I've got the quote because I, because I marked it when I read it again this morning. Every, um, if you aim for a 10 in all things and get a 6, you're going to be very disappointed. And unfortunately, that's why you quality time girls, and he's referring to Heidi there, are going to be one generation of disappointed women. Interesting, exemplary, even sexy, but basically unhappy. The ones who open doors usually are it's a it's a comment on the feminist movement of the 70s and, and i like what you said earlier about it being an important line of the play you were mentioning a different line and i think that this one yeah. becomes a very important line in the play Me because too. we're i mean we're immediately not on scoop's side in the scene not only because heidi is the character of story whom we've been following but because scoop's a jerk and yeah. is having these conversations at his wedding to another woman so we're not on his side. And yet, at least in terms of this story, for much of the story, Scoop is right. Mm -hmm. oh, at yeah. least in the fact that Heidi is unhappy. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Even at the end, when he says, are you happy? She can't she can't actually answer it. Those are certainly the, the major four characters that revolve around the Heidi Chronicles, which right. is what uh, I think Susan calls sort of the events <laughs> of Heidi's life as they go by. Right, right. We haven't really talked about Heidi, though. Right. Heidi, Heidi represents the true believers in the women's movement of the time. She has opportunity to join with Susan, her friend, in, uh, in a Hollywood venture, 
of uh, a TV show Susan pitches to her. She wants Heidi to be a consultant on. Apparently, we find out in the last scene that the show has become very popular, which and so we conclude it made Susan a lot of money and could have made Heidi a lot of money. But Heidi has Heidi says, no, I, I don't. That's not what I do. I'm an art historian. She's kind of a purist all the way through. Um, I would love to spend a great deal of time actually talking about the TV show that Peter Scoop and Heidi are all three on. But that also happens. She's given an opportunity to be flashy. That might not be quite the right word. But what happens in that TV show is that she she doesn't answer questions just to sound good, to sound smart. She's asked a question and she's it's and it's about Bertrand Russell and she says, I I don't know anything about Bertrand Russell. And instead of answering to sound good which she could have done so she's just this very her her character is very it, it is an ideologically pure person i think she she knows what she knows she's going for this education she 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 can't find um she can't find the kind of man that will actually be her partner uh, so so we've got scoop that we've already talked about talked about peter has the potential of being that but peter is gay we we know that she's throughout the play she's seeing other men one she moves to london to write or for a we don't know how long a, a year or two probably and she is with another man and they are thinking about marriage but he wants to stay in London. He doesn't want to come to the United States and she wants to teach at Columbia. So instead of compromising so that she can have the marriage relation relationship, she leaves and leaves him and goes to teach. So there's all, all the way through, there are relationships that she has that are not the pure kind of partnerships that she longs for and believes, genuinely believes, are possible. And she, maybe one of the questions that she asks herself and the people around her through the play is, is that particular part of my life, the uh, the familial, getting married, having children, is that part of my life, something that I want? She says a number of times that she wants it, but is it even possible given that I have decided, partially because of the person that she grows to be in Act One, mm -hmm. that I've decided to be a career-oriented, mm -hmm. um, like you say, very ideologically pure feminist of the time. Yeah, and Peter is actually the one that I think challenges that the most, ironically, perhaps, when she is about to move away. She's been offered a position at a college in the Midwest and she's going to move away from New York and he says he, he really challenges her in terms of friendships he tells her that she's trying to escape he he talks to her about genuine friends uh, why don't you want just friendship and and I don't think she has a good answer for that she probably is trying to escape 
Right. And and that scene comes just after one of the um, one of the very, very memorable moments of the play. She's been invited to speak mm-hmm. at like an anniversary of the school she yeah. went to or a, like a celebration of the women alumni yeah. or, or, or something like that. Some sort of special event like that. And the speech is really cool dramatically. <laughs> it's a, it's an amazing monologue. Amazing yeah. monologue. Terrible speech for the moment, yeah. though. Yeah, and but That's one of the things that monologue. makes it amazing. Yeah. yeah. She, it's interesting. I watched some clips from various productions of this in preparation for the episode, and I, I saw one of the B-roll clips that floats around from the 2015 Broadway revival is of Elizabeth Moss playing this monologue. Mm. And it's nothing like I imagined at all, at least her playing of it. Mm. Um, the, the monologue, I think, reads so funny and so um, as if Heidi sort of has a, a, a sense of what she's commenting on herself mm-hmm. about. Right. And Elizabeth Moss, at least, her playing of it was very emotionally connected to what was going on. And it, it lent a sort of, you could see that Heidi was kind of coming apart at the seams. Uh, huh. Rather than, I kind of read it as a more um, a more intellectual understanding that she should be coming apart at the seams, maybe. Does that make some sense? Yeah, it it does. I, I think... In the monologue, she's. I, I think Heidi's education makes her very good at analyzing situations. And I think that's what she's doing with this. And I think the monologue is Heidi being, feeling what she says at the end of the monologue. I thought the point of this was that we were in it together. And she no longer feels like women are in it together yeah so she she gets up to give the speech and basically says look i didn't prepare a speech there's a very funny line about procrastinating as a Mm -hmm. student she Mm -hmm. basically says i don't have a speech um and you probably think it's because i'm some sort of superwoman and i've had all these you know i've I've gotten my kids all these amazing things that my kids are doing and i've made all this amazing food and my husband and i have spent all this amazing time together and i'm working on all these amazing art history projects and that's why i didn't have time to write a speech but really none of that is true i just don't have one Mm -hmm. and so what she goes on to tell is a story of being in a locker room at the gym where she does like an aerobics class Mm -hmm. and the locker room is filled with women of all different ages of all different social bents all different awarenesses etc and and through a series of events that she describes happening in the locker room see if you agree with me on this karen the kind of the core of the story is that she does not really feel like she has a connection with any of the women right right and she ends the, she ends the monologue saying she that she feels stranded that's the word that she keeps using yeah yeah stranded yeah, yeah. jacob i saw I, I saw this on Broadway in the late 1980s. Did you really? How awesome. I, yeah, yeah. Joan Allen was amazing. She's, she's able, she was able to carry all of the, she just struck the right tone, you know. 
And you have to, right? I mean, without yeah. Wendy, there's no play oh, here, no, I don't no, think. Right, right. Scoop and Peter are very fun characters, yeah. and Susan's journey is so crazy, mm-hmm. and all of that is wonderful flavoring, Yeah. but there, there's no meat to the play without, without a Heidi. very specific Heidi. That's right. That's exactly right. So here's an interesting, and maybe having seen the play, you might have some insight on this too, Karen. As we've noted, the play takes place over multiple years, and each scene becomes something that happens several years apart. Um, So we only catch these sort of fleeting glimpses of what's going on in Heidi's life at any particular moment across 25, almost 25 years. But because it's a play and we see them all right next to each other, there is a narrative sense that becomes, for me, a little bit hard to connect with the years that are going by. Each scene, to me, because it plays right after the previous scene, there's some connection there that really wouldn't be there in Heidi's true life as it's as it's lived. Yeah. I, one of the things that the play does, I, um, I'm, I'm going to diverge just a little bit Jacob and say that I have uh, assigned this play in dramatic lit classes to students from time to time and I their response to the play is I think tepid at best because I, and I'm, I'm guessing it's um, Heidi is only a little bit older than I am in this book so she went into college about the time I was entering high school-ish, right? So just a, just a couple years older. And so I recognize the I, I, Wendy Wasserstein has written, has written moments. Um, I recognize rolling up your, the waistband of your skirts to be shorter. I recognize having a women's uh, um, uh, group meeting in which there's always somebody who's who thinks that their their uh, liberation is going to come by swearing a lot and there's always somebody who's the housewife who's trying to um, be be more self-actualized and so she has I mean I've I've been in those meetings so she what she does structurally is she she makes she finds those key moments and now we're in a a situation where um you know here here's a a baby shower and things are different again and then we're in this you know high-powered lunch meeting where things are different so she's you're you're right the the fact that you don't you don't see the years in between it's kind of a it's it's just it's just pinning specific moments in 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 the women's movement i think and in in the kinds of things that happened and the 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 meeting the um tv show being in the tv show and having the men interrupt heidi every single time she goes to say something i don't know a professional woman over the age of 35 who has not had that happen to 
her. I mean, maybe not on television, but hasn't had that exact thing happen to her. So my point in trying to answer your your question is that I think Wasserstein just pins these very specific kinds of things that happen on the journey because there's there is a better awareness of women's uh, rights women's issues uh, Denise is a character I'm fascinated with because she represents once Wendy or I'm sorry Heidi and um, Susan get older she, Denise represents the younger women who think that maybe their older sisters have have paid too big a price and who think she actually can have everything she can have the husband and the baby and the hotshot career etc etc so uh, um i think there's a pinning of 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 moments and that's what you're experiencing when you read the play i could be wrong but no, I, I think that you're right. And and the way that she uses these pinned moments to construct a narrative that is followable over the course of 25 years yes. is really remarkable. You mentioned the TV studio scene. That scene is immediately followed by the restaurant scene with Susan and the offer. And that scene is immediately followed by the monologue speech where she breaks down. And those three things seem to follow sort of typical playwriting structure. This happens and this happens and then this happens and because of this, because of this, because of this. Those follow, at least in terms of at least, you know, my perception of the events so fluidly, so well, even though the scenes take place two years apart. Years apart, And there's yep. a whole life that Heidi lives between them yes. that we're not privy to. Yes. But the way that she's drawn up these particular moments... I don't know, it cruises us along in a way that we can kind of understand the evolution of Heidi scene to scene as a more typical, more slimmed down timeline. Correct, correct. I, I think, um, now I, I haven't studied this exactly, but there are uh, wonderful parallels to Wendy Wasserstein's life as well in this. And I don't know if you noticed that it's uh, at the beginning of the, text she says that this is for Christopher she was she was really good friends with Christopher Durang they were there was a close friendship there and oh. and um also if you I after uh, Wasserstein died Christopher Durang wrote uh, this this piece about her and he says that when they first met he says to her what Peter says to Heidi at the beginning you must be very brilliant to be so bored or something like that i can't remember yes, right you yes. know mm -hmm. durang said that to wasserstein when they first met so she's she's and wasserstein finally said i'm i'm gonna when she was in her early 40s she said i'm gonna have a baby and she she had a child she didn't adopt one but she birthed a child and the the she never revealed who, who the father was so there, there are there are these she was in a way writing from a depth of knowledge of what she knew to be true. Yeah, that's not surprising to learn, I don't think. And those of you who've read the script or seen the show probably won't be surprised about that either. Heidi, as a character, has a kind of gravitas and a kind of real honest, um, you know, unlike 
maybe some of the other characters in the play that are, I think, clearly fictional yeah. or fictionalized realities or representations of yeah. people. Heidi really pushes against being representative of something. She does. Um, in a way that makes her just such a an amazing character to be on the journey with. And then at the end, because she so resists repres- you know, being a stand-in for a particular movement or time, yep. she actually ends up becoming a really great example yes. of the, the the life course of, you know, women at that particular time. That's right. Yep. Yep. Good observation. All right. Um I think I, I'm interested, Karen. We should talk about the TV studio scene um, that you mentioned. So Wendy ha- or Heidi, not Wendy. Wendy has come <laughs> back from the UK. She has written her book. The book is uh, and the light floods in from the left and other misconceptions or something like that. Mm-hmm, it's mm-hmm. Uh, a commentary on. I think the the women's movement and art history and on gender politics, um, some some book of that sort. The book has been very successful. She's now got a successful teaching career. She's got a friend who's a high-powered VP at a television company. So she and Peter and Scoop are all three invited to be guests on a morning interview talk show. Mm-hmm. Hello, New and, York is yeah. the name of it. That's right. Hello, New York. And what happens, you've described it a little bit. The men more than dominate the the interview time. Yep. And they see when whenever Scoop and Peter are together and they're only actually together a couple of times in the script. But when they are together, they always seem to be competing, even though they are they are light years apart in terms of what they do for a living, in terms of the way they live. I mean, there's really no comparison between them, but nevertheless, they are highly competitive. And they sh- and, and they're really the, the only thing they have to be competitive about is their mutual relationship to Heidi. That's right. Because you're right. There's no, there's I mean, he's in magazine publication and, yeah. and he's a doctor. Yeah. There's not, they're not up for any awards no. that they could possibly win over the other right. except for the award of Heidi's time and affection and friendship. That's right. That's right. And so that that kind of becomes a little bit of a through line. They they talk about the other one when they're alone with Heidi even asking, you know, if she keeps in touch with the other one or something. And you might remember in the in the wedding scene, Scoop asks Peter and Heidi if they are an item now. And Heidi says no, but Peter says yes. And and, and uh, the stage direction says he says yes more loudly. Right, right. So you know, I mean, they're they're just always in a competition, and that is never more clear than it is in that um, television studio scene. They so when one of them says something, the other one has to sound like they're they're. Um, they 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 try to sound like men who get women you know they understand the issues that women have and they're and they're sympathetic toward the women's movement and towards you know women's issues and in the in the course of doing that they never actually let Heidi speak she starts and they interrupt her just every time yeah 
these are they're trying to come across as and and in some fashion they really are yeah uh, in very enlightened yeah um, socially conscious yeah. caring men yeah and th- th- one great example that is the point that you mentioned April is asking very specifically has asked Heidi two questions about women and women's experiences. Mm-hmm. I believe the first of them is something like, do you think that women are learning that they have to settle, that it is impossible to have uh, the both the high-powered career and the loving family? Or do you think women are learning they might have to settle? And mm-hmm. Heidi starts to answer the question and Scoop hops in and says, well, then we got to ask men to settle too. Uh, my, I love my wife. I'm celebrating. And he, he goes on and on. And then April... I I suppose it would depend on how you played April, but either noticing this or being brilliantly obtuse to it, April asks Heidi another question. I think the question is about uh, whether whether women who are reaching a certain age are going to become more worried about having children than – than a man in a similar situation might be because there's there's not a, a, the same biological clock on men. Mm-hmm. And again, Heidi starts to answer the question and Peter, the doctor, hops in and says, no, 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 look, this is what I know medically. <laughs> Women can have <laughs> right. uh, children up to this, this, and this time. And then April continues for the next several sets of the segment to try to get Heidi to answer a question and the same thing happens to the point where the men start to say things that that are just utterly vapid yes that just don't mean anything right right that's exactly what happens i think one of them says something like I think we're all awaiting a rebirth of wonder. Yes, aren't yes. We? <laughs> they, he quotes the line in the Ferlinghetti poem. Yeah, just, yeah, right. So they're just saying things to look good on TV, right? I think that's what they're doing, and, and they do. I mean, they're yeah. they're they're very articulate, very sharp men, and that's really been their reality through the whole play. They have been Heidi's primary foils because both of them are intellectually and verbally her equals. Yes, right. And right. so something about and 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 I I might have a, a misguided sense of this, Karen, but it seems like to me until that point in the script they have been sufficiently deferential to Heidi in conversation. Mm -hmm. They don't seem to interrupt her or domineer her in their private conversations to that degree, so much that that becomes sort of a surprising moment in their story in life. Yes, yes, you are right. They're not written like that in any other scene, just that one. So that tells us something, doesn't it? Well, yeah, it it makes... uh, it, it leaves you starting to wonder what just happened. Yeah. And Heidi kind of has a similar reflection at the end of the interview when the cameras are off. She's quite angry with them for interrupting and, and accuses them several times of not letting her say anything, saying everything for her. And she eventually goes off and the two men are kind of left there and they both sort of have a moment of, oh, Maybe we mishandled that or we, we we didn't do that the right way. So what is it, do you think, that Wendy Wasserstein is trying to tell us? Or is there some communication being had about the particular setting in which this scene happens that causes them to act in a way that they really don't through the rest of the script? Yeah. Well, they they have each reached a level of success 
that is a little bit heady, right? The Peter has been on the, I don't know, the pediatrician of the year in New York for a couple of issues of this magazine. Uh, the magazine itself for Scoop has been successful. So they, they each have this modicum of success and, and then, and the studio is, it's, it's very public. I mean, they need to, they need to look good. I mean, Peter at when everything's done, Peter actually says to Scoop, you won. I mean, they, it, they're not even hiding the fact that it's a competition, are they? They're no. And, and their answer to Heidi her accusation is basically, you know, it's not really our fault that you didn't say anything. No, right. And the, the subtext, they don't actually say this, but it's at least my sense of their response is, well, you should have spoken up. Yeah, you, you right, know, If you didn't right. want us to interrupt you, you should have not let us interrupt you. Yes, right. It's not my fault you didn't say anything, one of them says. Yeah. And uh, Heidi just leaves them. She's angry. She leaves them. Um, and then Peter and Scoop have this lovely scene. I mean, it's not really lovely. It's kind of caustic, but I really like it where they're kind of at each, each other. And Scoop says, Peter, do people like you, <coughs> I don't know what he means by like you. Do people like you ever wonder what it's all for? And Peter says, people like you run the world. You decide what it's all for. And then Scoop says, you know what genuinely surprises me? You're a far more arrogant man than I am. I, I, so I think the, yeah, I, I just think there's so much in that whole scene about. Right. It, it, and it's, they, you know, they sort of end up abandoning their, the, the reality of their deference to a, to a smart, educated articulate woman yeah yeah the, the minute somebody shows up to watch yes both of them in their private encounters with Heidi they are I think the the conversations come off fairly balanced mm -hmm. Heidi yes. is a little bit less decisive of a human being than either of them yes and so they maybe dominate a little bit of the agency of the conversations yeah um in a way that Heidi doesn't always, but they certainly don't dominate the talking time. No, no, right, right. And Heidi but, is very definitely their equal when they're one on one. Yes, but then the camera lights turn on and America's watching, yeah. and it's like some light switches flipped, and they both become just the worst version yep. of yep. Uh, you know the the educated, supposedly enlightened man yeah. who just has everything to say in place of uh, the the female actually speaking for herself. That's right. That's right. And they say things that are expected too, right? So Scoop suddenly becomes the, you know, the future's about my children. Father, when we're thinking, oh, come on, how much time do you spend with your kids, you know? Yeah, right. <laughs> there, there's things in there that are like that. That clearly can't be what you actually think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Peter, you know, sort of deftly avoids various questions about his personal life for the sake of the camera. That's right. Um, they want him to say that he's gay, right? And they want him to talk about, you know, choosing to have a child or not have a child with his partner right. and, yep. and, and things like that. And he ducks and dodges those questions 
uh, fairly capably. And, you know, of the two men, if the scene had played out where Scoop was the only one interrupting Heidi, there's a, that, that is more understandable. Mm-hmm. It still is a little bit out of character. That's still not quite who he is when, when, when they're in private. But at the very least, we know the Scoop's a jerk. Yeah. But the surprise moment for me always comes when Peter, and he's the second of the two to do the interrupting yep, bit. Yep. So he comes second. And when he does it, there's a moment of what in the world? Yep. Well, and so let me let me say that the moral of the story then, Jacob, is that even the best, best intentioned men interrupt women <laughs> uh, regularly without knowing that they're doing it. And not really each other. Correct. Right? Because I'm a habitual interrupter. It, and I interrupt <laughs> everyone that I meet. But, you know, in this particular scene, the interruption is not for each other. And in fact, right. Peter and Scoop, at least on camera, treat each other with a real, um, it almost seems almost seems genuine affection. Yeah, yeah. Uh, right. And willingness to praise each other's right. successes and comments mm-hmm. and let them have a full idea, even when the idea is ridiculous. Yes, right, uh, right. But the same respect is not paid to Heidi. Right, right. Wow, yep, that's right. So what ends up happening in Heidi's life, Karen? I don't think we have talked the audience through the end of the play, um, we, we've talked about how as a result of this TV studio thing, and, and again, I say a result of, but that's kind of uh, on a traditional timeline. Again, these things are all spread apart by many, many years. There's the TV studio scene. There's the scene in the, uh, in the cafe where she's offered the job on the TV show and turns it down. There's the terrible speech gone wrong. And then, as you mentioned, she decides she's going to move to a college in the Midwest. So she appears at Peter's hospital in the middle of the night with this bag of art-related donations. Um, And and Peter kind of talks her out of it. Yeah. The last two scenes of the play are with Peter and with Scoop. One's with the next to the last scene is with Peter and the last scene is with Scoop. And she is, yeah, so she goes to the hospital. He has started a a, a ward for, I'm going to get this wrong, Jacob. You're going to have to help me. He has started this specific ward for children. And I, I I think it's for HIV AIDS kids. Is it? Uh, it's something very specific yeah. like that. I'm not. I couldn't quite tell you exactly what the treatment is for. Although that would certainly fit yeah. within what, one of his journeys. Yeah, and he's and he's he's distraught, not just because Heidi says she's leaving, but because his life. He he has been going to funerals of gay friends. Um, over and over and over and over again he tells a story of a house being burned um, because as as kind of a hate crime against uh, children that were HIV positive in the house and he's he's just he's sad he's desperately sad and he's angry 
and now Heidi's leaving. And, and so the exchange between them, Heidi is initially, she uses words that she doesn't usually use. She calls him sweetie. She calls him honey. She seems a little uh, too maternal, maternalistic to him, I think might be the right word. And, and he, he calls her on it. He, he tells her not, you know, to, to stop. Um, well, and, and his, his accusation of her decision, his sense of it is framed by the things that you describe, these mm-hmm. sort of really tragic things that have happened around him, not so much to him, but right. certainly to people that he knows. And his accusation is people who have gone through that kind of real um a real controversy, real struggle, uh, real sorrow, don't have the luxury of being sad about what you're sad about. Right, that right. Your life isn't as awesome as it might have been. Yes. Uh, despite all the awesome things about your life. Right. The, it's, it, the, the accusation is sort of an accusation of, of an unknown privilege. Yes. That Heidi maybe is not, is not um, being fair about the how incredible the reality of her life is that's right that's that's very good yeah yes he and i think peter is the only one in her life who could call her on something like that so it shows it's something very real about their relationship and him him calling her on that makes her say maybe i could postpone this maybe i could stay maybe you don't have to lose this friend there's a structural um, feature here that is interesting to me in that this is the second to last scene of Act Two mm-hmm. where he really pushes back against her. And the second to last scene of Act One is the scene where they are protesting outside of the art museum. Yes. And it's one of the other few times in the play where Peter really pushes back against her. Yes. And the next scene in both acts is followed by a significant moment in her relationship between her and Scoop. Scoop, right, 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 exactly right. I I suspect, although we don't have the time to do it now, I suspect if we went through some of the other uh, structural similarities between the acts, Mm -hmm. we would find them as well. Absolutely. And let me just make this comment, too, about Peter at the the protest outside the art institute in chicago this this all this nuance of the the sort of not knowing what to do with the women's movement and where men fit in it peter wants to go with them and the one the other woman with heidi says no you can't come in because this is a women's march so where do men really you don't want men to march on behalf of women, you know, that, that sort of nuance is, is there, that was a very real struggle at the time. If this, if yeah. That, if and, and sense. of course, one of the things that Wendy Wasserstein does so incredibly is takes the very real 
already nuanced struggle of how do men fit into the women's movement and then add a layer of personality and character on the top. Exactly. Because one of the reasons why they don't really want Peter to come is just because of who Peter is. He's a little bit sarcastic. Yep. He's a little bit inclined to make fun of everything. Yep. And though his heart is absolutely in the right place, and he, I'm sure that he is willing to march to the curator's office <laughs> and in all earnestness demand the inclusion of more women in the art, he's also, he just likes to to make fun of things. And so he comes across as a little bit caustic and, in that moment. Right. And he knows the curator on top of That's it. That's right. He could actually, they would actually have entrance if they just used him. Yeah. That's yeah. right. That's right. I, the, 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 that protest scene and then the uh, ensuing scene with Peter might be my favorite scene of the play. Yeah. Uh, I love the conversation she and Peter have. And I also, I love the moment where he sort of makes her hit him. Oh, yes. Um, and then Me they too. sort of back and forth about all the things, not only the things that aren't true that he's, they're making fun of, but then it becomes the real accusations, yes. including, and what causes, as you've mentioned before, the brilliant thing that Heidi would never have said, but ends up saying that she's upset really that he's not in love with her. Yeah. Yeah. That, yep. It's, it's beautiful writing. It's genuinely gorgeous writing. Yeah. All all the way through. So we've, we've talked about the, so she decides not to go to the Midwest to take the job at the college because Peter talked her out of it. Mm. That's a moment of the scene that is a little bit odd to me mm-hmm. and it would probably if i were ever directing or acting require some real thought about exactly what what situation is heidi in as she enters the hospital that she's able to be persuaded not to go yeah. and it doesn't even seem with that much argument right right that yes i i agree with you i don't i don't i'm not sure we have a clear understanding of of that why i mean her reason for going must have been so slight that then the change to stay made sense in her own mind but i don't yeah or i mean was she ever going at all (laughs) she brings the things to donate and claims she is but as with most of the play all we really have is her word right this isn't the kind of play where we see a, a bunch of other scenes and can confirm the biased interpretations of the characters in fact the play leans pretty heavily on the characters in a biased way interpreting each other's lives but nothing nothing we have seen or heard from Heidi up to that point would indicate that she's that manipulative that she would do that that she would say she was going to do that and that be a lie you know no that, I, yeah. I agree with you I definitely yeah. agree with you about that and it it becomes an odd mystery of is the is the scene or is the affection between her and Peter truly so great that that persuades her not to leave her friend in New York. Um, That scene makes some claims about friendship that that really... I don't know. They they really they stir in me some some really touching feelings yeah. about the way that Peter talks about friendship as being kin to family. And I I think I think that's the crucial thing about their relationship that they are family to each other in this profound way. They and I think I think we should say that that scene ends um, 
reminiscent of the first scene of the play when they meet they 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 do the the fantasy scene of the cruise and they and they dance to the shoop shoop song and I'm interested in your take on that, Karen. It's an it's so odd this fantasy cruise um, improvisational exercise or mm-hmm. a game of pretend. They do it, you know, within minutes of meeting each other mm-hmm. with no forethought, <laughs> and it yeah. you know becomes the crux moment of their friendship. In the in in, in as the play's concerned, I, I don't know. Is there some significance to it that escapes me? It seems it's very odd to me. Yeah, I I don't think there's significant that significance that has escaped you, Jacob. I I think it's it just is trying to show us in the first scene that these two have a connection that is an intellectual one that means that they because I mean if if okay so she's bored it's obvious to him that she's bored he's bored. He's, she brought like a yeah. like a textbook with her to I read know, at right? the dance. <laughs> so he starts. So he's what he says isn't. I mean, it's not a fantasy like a you know a science fiction fantasy. It's this romance fantasy, right? We're on a cruise, okay. And so they start saying these sort of literary lines to each other. It it reinforces how smart they both are that they both read a lot, etc. So I think it sets up their relationship. But you know, you 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 know this. Like when I'm watching a show like West Wing and I think, "Oh, if 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 politicians only had good writers writing for them, how <laughs> how smart they all would be." That's, that's right. That's, yeah. That's how clever all their right. exchanges would e- be. Exactly. And that's kind of how I feel about this that in real life Hardly anybody is quite this clever or this smart. Um, that yes, yeah. and and honestly, that's one of the uh, outstanding accusations against Wendy Wasserstein is that yeah. she maybe tends to write people that are cleverer than the than the reality of the people. Yeah, are. yeah. No, everybody no she writes is real with it. Yeah, um, yeah. For me, the other thing that the cruise—I uh, don't know what we call it—the cruise game, the cruise exercise, what it. Um, creates as a sense around Heidi and Peter is also the sense that 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 Heidi is willing to play that there is a a humorous fun side to her as well yes you know he meets her immediately she looks bored at the dance she's got a textbook with her throughout the play she's a she's an intellectual she's a scholar she's an academic that's her job but there is also this deeper part, especially to her and Peter's friendship, which is a deep and abiding love of humor and play and imagination that probably makes her so good at her job as an art historian. Right, right. I think that's exactly right. And I, th- I think it's notable structurally that in the first scene, Peter starts it. In, the, in, in our last scene with Heidi and Peter, Heidi starts it. Yes, yes, yes. So then the the final scene of the play is Heidi sitting on a rocking chair, basically in an empty apartment. Yeah, because her furniture um, hasn't come yet. She's moved into this apartment in New York and her furniture hasn't come. And uh, uh, Scoop arrives and announces that he sold the magazine and won't tell her why immediately. Uh, eventually, it is revealed that in Wendy's life, what is the major occurrence? I'm not Wendy. I keep doing this. <laughs> Heidi. Yeah, yeah. 
Well, the major occurrence is she has adopted this little girl. Yeah. Yeah, and he comes, he has a gift for the baby. He, yeah, he, he doesn't act like he knows that when he comes in. Um, he, and he doesn't, it's also important that he comes to tell Heidi first because he doesn't have anybody like Heidi in his life. He, he has a lot of women, clearly a lot of women, but he doesn't have anybody like Heidi who's going to know what important things are happening or, or, or the weight of the things that are happening to him. Right. And he brings her the news that he sold the magazine and later in the scene reveals that he's going to run for office, as we've mentioned. And that's how the play ends is uh, with that announcement and, and their goodbye. And Heidi is then left with her child and she sings the lines of the song that she and Scoop have kind of shared between them. We haven't we don't have time now. and We haven't really much talked about the, the role of music in the play, but music is so incredibly important. And this is one of those places where the payoff really comes yes, right. when she sings this song that she and Scoop have been singing back to each other to her own child. And it's a very, uh, very romantic, um, but in a a more pure love kind of way. Yeah. You, know, you send me, you take me, et yeah. cetera. It's yeah, um, beautiful. What do you think, Karen, about the decision to end the play with a scene with Scoop? <laughs> I mean, you almost feel like the scene with Peter could have ended the play. Mm-hmm. And it, it, if you had to pick, I think the, her relationship with Peter is more special or more... I don't know. It's at least the the relationship I'm rooting more for as an audience member, not the romantic relationship, obviously, but their friendship than her and Scoop. Right. I I tried to think about this when I read it this time. Why why are we ending with Scoop? Um, he asks her if she has any regrets, and. And and Scoop Scoop is the one with regrets. I think Peter doesn't have regrets. Peter has lived his life the way that he has felt like he should. He's doing the work that he's been called to. Scoop is the one who's kind of banging around, and and um, we we go back to uh, he he talks about what you referred to earlier, Jacob. He talks about that going for a 10 as opposed to going for a six. And now he, he's saying the opposite. When you go for a six and you hit a six, that's all there is. Why wouldn't you go for a 10, even if it's not a take, not quite attainable? Why would you not go for the 10? And it's notable that he's spurred to that thought, at least he claims. Again, all we have is his claim. But he says that he was spurred to that realization because he heard that Heidi adopted her child. And so that kind of shakes him to his core and says, oh, she's going for her 10. And I'm not. I'm just, I'm this editor of a magazine. Scoop's career track is really interesting. As you mentioned, he, you know, he's, he's a successful journalist for a while. And then he becomes he goes to law school and becomes a successful law clerk for a Supreme Court and seems set up to pursue politics and then goes back to being just the, the manager of a, a magazine that he creates or the owner of a magazine that he creates. And then at this point in his life says, well, this magazine is nothing. It's just paper. It's, I just I didn't make anything. Oh, so I, I set the trends for a while and made a lot of money. But that's not my 10. I want to do something more and better, in this case, run for office. Yeah. 
And he's back to the children. He's saying, what am I going to tell my kids I did with my life? If what I did was make chintz popular, that, that sort of thing. And then Heidi has this beautiful, I, I really love this piece, Jacob, where she says, uh, when, when he, Scoop asks her if she's happy. And I, I think the reason Scoop's the last one is because of the kind of questions he can ask her that Peter wouldn't, at, wouldn't, wouldn't ask her. And one of them is, are you happy? And she's, she talks about having this daughter and, and she says, maybe someday your son and my daughter will meet on a plane over Chicago and he'll never tell her it's either or baby yeah and she'll never think she's worthless unless he lets her have it all maybe just maybe things will be a little better so it's an incremental change maybe we don't change the world maybe we just have incremental and also maybe my relationship with someone like you scoop is never really going to change. You're always going to think that yeah. being a mother is my 10. She actually accuses him of that yeah. at, at one point she in the scene, that, whereas right, a career right, right. for you is your 10. Uh, but for our yeah. children, it might be better. And that's a thought that Heidi has a number of times throughout the play, this idea that yes. even if I, I can't make the world exactly the way I want it, maybe our children will see a better version right, of right. it. It's, it's, I, I think it's actually very, very hopeful. Not hopeful for Scoop necessarily. I don't know that we have any kind of faith or confidence that he's gonna grow up to be a whole yeah. <laughs> man. But um, but but he's still likable. That's one of the things I like about Wasserstein's writings. Even the people I don't like are still likable yeah, people it, on some level. It, it's you know? incredible writing, and it's also very frustrating. <laughs> That through yeah, the whole yeah, play, it's yeah. like, Heidi, why are you hanging out with this guy other than the fact that he's just so darn likable? He's just so darn know, funny right? and, and fun to be in conversation that. with. But if not for that, why are you, why have anything to do with someone like Scoop? Yeah, yeah, right, right. Well, I think that is all the time we have for today's episode. There, <laughs> uh, you're, uh, you're experiencing what Jackson does to me all the time, Karen. <laughs> <laughs> I could talk for hours about uh, many, many scripts, but this is definitely one of them. Um, yeah, I love this script. Thank you for inviting me to talk yes, about this. Thank trick. you so much for being a guest. You're you're obviously a wonderful guest, and we love having you on, Karen. And um, anytime, uh, great. Well, if you are interested in ha- continuing the conversation with us, you can find us at No Script Podcast. That's the handle, and we're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. You can also email us noscriptpodcast at gmail.com. We've had some really awesome g- email conversations with some of our listeners in recent times, so uh, we hope that that keeps up. If you like this episode or some of our other episodes, please tell your friends, share them on your social media. You can find the podcast at Podbean where it's hosted at Google Play, Apple Podcasts, or Spotify. A link to the new episode is posted every week on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. So that's a great place to find us as well. Until next time, again, next week will be our last episode of season two. We'll be taking about a month's break and we'll be back with you for the beginning of season three at the beginning of July. We will see you then. Thanks so much, Karen, and thank you, listeners. Thank you, Jacob. Bye-bye.